Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Intrigue Explained podcast. We're recording Friday, 16 February. With me, as always, is Helen and Dimitri. And we are talking this week about generally the US's role in the world and more specifically about whether Trump and his comments about NATO and European security, whether he made a good point or not. So uh, let's dive in. Hello, guys. Welcome back for another week of the Intrigue Explained podcast. Helen, looking uh, very well there. Thank you. It's been You're in DC? from you, John. I am in Washington, DC. Not on the road this week. That's, oh, I mean, it's a relief for you more than it is for us, but it's good to hear. That's right. Dimitri, how are you? You're in Geneva there with that beautiful background of never-changing green foliage that you use. I like that Helen gets a compliment for looking well and I get a compliment <laughs> for the YouTube video I have looped behind my head that is accurate <laughs> if hurtful, but I am well, John. I don't know what we'd do if I started off with a compliment to you, Dimitri. It'd be, uh, you'd be all at sea and wouldn't be able to record for the next 45 minutes. I would just assume you've been replaced with a poorly trained AI avatar. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. The broad topic we're going to discuss this week is our piece of content that keeps giving Donald Trump's comments on NATO and European defense spending. But before we get into the the sort of various complex issues surrounding that, we wanted to take a moment just at the top of the podcast. Uh, We're recording on Friday the 16th of February, the morning of Friday the 16th of February, the news of Alexei Navalny, the Russian politician opposition figure, broke a little bit earlier that he he died in prison. So we wanted to just take a moment to reflect on that, to give you a few details. Dimitri, you're probably best placed to kind of chat about that, given you're our expert on all things Russia slash Ukraine. Sure. So Alexei Navalny, by all accounts, died. This morning, we're recording this on Friday. He died after a walk in the Arctic penal colony where he has been sent to by the Russian regime. To give people a sense, this thing is about 2,000 kilometers north of Moscow, which is not welcoming terrain. Alexei Navalny was a prominent anti-corruption campaigner in Russia. That's how he got his start. That is not a safe occupation to have in Putin's Russia. In the past, he ran for the mayoral elections and came second. He's been banned from presidential elections. In 2020, he was poisoned, almost certainly by the Russian regime. He ended up getting treatment in Berlin where they discovered that he was poisoned with Novichok, that famous Russian poison that Russia uses to very demonstratively punish people abroad. And it was through underpants, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was... I, John, we wrote about this in one of the first ever Substack intrigues, you know, the OG. I think that's right. He was on a plane from somewhere in far eastern Russia to somewhere else and, and like halfway through the plane flight got basically an emergency landing and pulled off it because he was so sick. So, yeah, I think that I, I think everyone remembers that. And after that, after he got treatment and recovered, he made the choice to return from Germany, where he would have been safe, to Russia, where he knew he would be arrested either on the tarmac or very shortly thereafter, and had to have known the likelihood of his ending up dead through some combination of sort of direct or indirect murder was virtually inevitable. This was really a continuation of his being a very prominent protest figure in Russia. He was one of the sort of stars of the 2011, I think it was, protests against the parliamentary elections where Putin's party won a suspicious number of seats amid allegations of all of the things you get accused of in Russian elections, which are probably on the money. He was 47 when he died. He leaves behind a wife and a team that sort of supported his campaigning efforts. I'll throw it to both of you for for reactions. I will say sort of from, from a political perspective, I think it's really important to separate sort of Navalny and who he was and the bravery of what he did and what he was trying to achieve from the actual political significance of this in Russia. It is fair to say that Navalny if you take the most positive view of him, represented a liberal strain of Russian politics that draws a lot of attention in the West, but is virtually impotent within the Russian Federation. 
built on a ton of, I think, Western hopium that Russia will liberalize and become one of the European, pan-European countries. Any day now. Yeah. I mean, very brief reactions. I, I, I don't have a lot to add to what you said, Dimitri. That's all spot on the money. I, I just think there'd be a very interesting, and maybe this has been done already, but like an, an autobi- sorry, a biography or an exploration of what drove Navalny. You mentioned going back after, but he was safe in Berlin. He'd recovered from Novichok. He, he could have moved there and gotten asylum. No dramas. He could have been a kind of opposition figure in exile, lived until he was, you know, in his old days and, and probably arguably even been more effective outside. I mean, I think at least that's an argument you could make. So I'd be very interested, uh, you know, at some point in the future, or if anybody knows of any work that's been done on on him or other kinds of figures like him, just like what motivates folks like this to keep going? He, he, he knew he was, I think, knew he was going to be killed or die at some point. It was a matter of how long he'd last. So I think it's sad. Um, I think it's sad news. I remember, I mean, he was also very iconic within sort of the Western world because he also, I mean, this is a very, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but he was also a very like charismatic guy who happened to look like Daniel Craig, right? I think we had made a couple of- I knew you were about to call him a tall drink of water. It's it's inevitable <laughs> when we get on the mic that Helen's just got to pick someone to to objectify. Honestly, it's appalling. <laughs> it is appalling. Keep me in line, John. But no, honestly, I mean, he obviously symbolizes the sort of anti-Putin, anti-corruption mission, right? And I think one of his most interesting works is when he revealed the documentary. Remember the documentary on YouTube that like broke all sorts of records about Putin's residence or his palace on the Black Sea? Do you guys remember that? I think yeah. like that was like a real sort of, I think, encouraging era in which, you know, people thought that there was going to be some kind of downfall waiting for Putin. But unfortunately, that's never really panned out. But I think going to your point, John, it's a really interesting one to think, what do these folks who obviously had been exiled and have are able to kind of live out their lives, what is it that drives them to kind of go back into the the, the pit, right, the, the pit mm. of life is... Similarly for sort of, you know, Liu Xiaobo, the Chinese dissident yep. and like others who have the ability to kind of just walk away but don't, I really admire their moral courage. I don't think that I probably would be able to say the same thing if I were in their position. No. All right. Well, from that, you know, fairly grim, I think, bit of news to a really uplifting bit of news, and it's Donald <laughs> Trump's comments on US defense spending. So let me just spend a minute setting up what we're going to have a discussion around today. We're going to have a fairly free-flowing discussion, hopefully, just you know what comes to mind about this general topic. And it's generally just the idea that whether the US should continue to guarantee European security, spend money on European security, and and even arguably global security. I'm thinking here, obviously, of the big ones like Taiwan and 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 arguably Israel and the Middle East. So just that general topic, it's prompted, obviously, um, by Donald Trump, who I think, well, probably about four or five days ago, late last week, when he was campaigning in South Carolina in the Republican primaries, he he was giving one of his, you know, interpretive artistic performances on stage where he kind of just lets his mind mind wander. And he played out a little, a little one-man play where he was Apparently, he he was recounting a story that a conversation he'd had with a president of a very big country. So you almost certainly know this conversation didn't happen. But he um, he said, well, sir, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? And that's what he said. This leader said to him, and he said, hey, what? You didn't pay. You're delinquent. You know, and he said, I won't protect you. I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage Russia to do whatever the, the hell they want with you. You got to pay up. That's a great impression, John. Yeah, I mean, you've really missed your calling there. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I, I toyed with the idea of doing a Donald Trump impression, and uh, I think we'll all be <laughs> grateful that I decided to come down on the side of not doing one. But, you know, the, the comments that made the news were, I would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want with you. Let's say he was talking about Poland or, a, you know, a Baltic state or even Ukraine. Right, or Germany even. Yeah. Do whatever the hell they want with you. You've got to pay up. And what he's talking about here is the idea that Europe for many, many years has been massively underspending on its NATO commitments. So NATO, generally, there's an informal commitment to spend 2% of your GDP on defence. For each member state, I think 11 currently do. Before that, it was even fewer NATO announced that up to 18 will hit that 2% by the end of this year. This has been a thing that Trump's been upset about for a while, that European mm-hmm. countries are freeloading on US security guarantees, on US funding, on US defense spending. They don't pay. They criticize the US, and, and he's very upset about it. So 
Let's uh, let me let me put a pin in it there because I don't want to talk forever. But what were your gut reactions when you heard Trump's comments and his? You know, maybe we don't focus on the the outrageous bit, the Russia comment, because I think that's what he does when he's campaigning. He says outrageous things to get the media, but behind it is a more serious point. So, Helen, initial reactions before we dive into more deep conversation about it. I mean, it's very entertaining, and I hate to say that it's entertaining because we don't want to give the guy airtime. But I think that this comment is something that will be front and centre of people's minds at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, and we'll get to that later on this episode. But I do think that every now and then it gets fact-checked or, like, has been fact-checked for the last three years. But I do think that it kind of at least, you know, holds the European countries accountable for stepping up to their 2% commitment, which a lot of them, I think from, like, 2014, there were only three countries that met that, and the rest of the country are now stepping up. But obviously it doesn't send a friendly signal to the Europeans, especially after this week sort of back and forth in Congress with a funding bill to support Ukraine. It doesn't send friendly signals to what a Republican administration might do in November if, um, if and when they come in. So I don't know, Trump does stuff like this to kind of get airtime and it's very effective in kind of bringing up the topic every now and then for Europeans who tend to be able to kind of let it slide. Maybe I've spent too long in the US. I've just heard myself say all these things and I don't know if Helen of 10 years ago would have said this. I mean, what, what do you reckon? You're, get, you're getting you're older. In Geneva. I'm getting older. That's right. Starting to make inappropriate comments about men and uh, and all sorts of other stuff. You guys can't see Helen's MAGA hat as she uh, keeps switching <laughs> colours midway through when a bald eagle lands on her shoulder. That's Chinese Lunar New Year red. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Correct. Year of the Dragon. So my, my reactions, look, again, you do have to set aside... Firstly, the suggestion that NATO is a fee-for-service organization and that this money were being paid into a general pot or paid to the US, which is kind of the way that if you take a literal reading of his comments, that's what's implied when that's not how NATO works. It's a spending commitment, a domestic defense spending commitment. Secondly, I think you have to set aside the fact that it's all very protection racket it's all very kind of Sicilian mobsters walking through your orange groves or your olive groves and going, sure would be a shame if due to a lack of protection payment, someone were to come and burn this to the ground. In fact, I'm pretty sure they will. Setting all of that aside, though, obviously you have to note it because it can never be said enough that these kind of comments are dangerous. I think the, the underlying point that I come back to is I think that implicit in those words is firstly that they... European NATO powers should spend more on defense. I think that is one point. But I think there is also an implication that somehow, if the Europeans spent more, that would somehow mean the US could spend less. And that is the part that I think is worth unpacking. And I know we're going to get into it. But I think that that is not quite as straightforward as implied. We are going to dive into it. Your initial reaction to his comments are, yes, he's outrageous. Yes, he does this. This is what he does. He's a, sh- I mean, he's a showman. We shouldn't discount that entirely in sort of like, oh, lol, haha, Trump's being crazy. But also, we should also note that the more outrageous portions of what he says are designed to, for attention and what he said behind it all, there might be something there to at least discuss. Is that is that, what, is that characterizing your response fairly to his initial comments? Yeah, I think I'm one of those people that does think it is worth noting when something is outrageous because otherwise we become numb to it. But I think you're right. And look, you know, Obama was making the exact same underlying Europe should spend more point. And no one has ever accused Obama of being careless with his words or sort of not thoughtful about these kind of issues. So I think and the, the underlying merits worth discussing. The stats show, I mean, in terms of if you're, again, we can get into the, the vagaries of it, but the, the stats show that, you know, spending has gone up now. Obviously, that's because the world has changed a lot. So like, you, you know, you're, you're always holding about a million variables constant if you want to try and kind of compare era to era. But I just wanted to point out, put, sort of just nail you down on that, just purely because I think we're going to have this conversation a lot in the next eight to nine months or however long the election cycle is, is in America. It feels like it's seven years long every four years. But I think it's important to kind of always put at the top of every conversation how to cover Trump. I, I've been involved in a few kind of offline discussions with really experienced media folk in the US about how you, no one's figured out how to cover Trump's brand of 
outrageous comments, but picking apart if he's got a point behind it and ha- whether you ignore the outrageous part of it or you say it's very dangerous or what, 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 it's a very difficult question. I don't think anyone's kind of figured it out. So I think it's always important just to sort of discuss that at the top. Now let, let's dive into to the actual defense spending Europe-US relations. And I think Dimitri, you pointed out something important there. It, the mechanics of how all of this works kind of do matter if you're going to have a, a thoughtful answer on, on what to make of it all. I think there's two things I'd pull out at the start, which is one, NATO's defense spending kind of commitment, which you mentioned, Dimitri, which is 2% of GDP for each member state. And there's no kind of paying the US or the US paying a NATO fund. Or, well, there is a little bit, but it's not. it doesn't quite work like that. It's also a guideline, John, right? It's a, it's like a non-committal guideline. Yeah, I th- well, I mean, it's clearly non-committal because Europe's been flouting it for a long time. But it, the, the idea is generally we're all going to spend this much, so it's roughly equal to the collective security of Europe. And behind that sits Article 5, which is if shit hits the fan, we're all obligated by treaty to come to each other's defence, but we've all been spending 2% for this period of time, so we'll all be able to. That's the, the fundamental nature of it. But the reality of NATO in my view, maybe you guys will push back, is that it's not about defense spending per se. It's about nuclear strategic deterrence with US assets spread across Europe from Germany to, I, I don't know where they've got them. They've, they've still got nuclear weapons in Turkey. Or was that the Cold War? That was the Cuban Missile Crisis. But anyway, the point is that you, you, the US has strategic assets right across Europe, and that's what NATO really is, is US nuclear deterrence. So the first question is, defense spending, do we think Trump has a point? Second question is, should the US even be involved in European security with its nuclear assets at all? Helen, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think for the sake of keeping the world order, the US should definitely be in Europe. I think that's a not negotiable for me, right? I think the, the so whether say, or not say the US why, because has- I think it's really important that we kind of spell that out because it's glossed over by academics and, and media types a lot. But like, why is it important that the US is in, in, in Europe for the world order? I mean, the way that we have gotten used to the world order in the last, what, since the world, I think since maybe the fall of the Berlin Wall is such that the US has been able to assure that they are able to come into a conflict if there is a conflict that is in direct contrast or in conflict with the way that we think about how the world should work. So, like, they're able to kind of maintain the peace as the world, I don't know, like police people. But I do think that it's more broadly also just like keeping the international sort of trade routes also secure and being able to kind of access the way that we've gotten used to the world as a sort of globalised entity in the last 30 years or so. I think there's a lot of things that we don't think about on the daily that derives from the broader kind of like strategic US presence everywhere in the world. But that is kind of my take on why they should be in Europe. But I think, you know, a lot of people obviously have different views about where they should be around the world, like outside of Europe in the global south in particular. I would push back firstly on John's characterization. I don't think it's just about nuclear deterrent. I think that the underlying point of NATO is that the US has the most formidable armed forces in the history of human civilization by a factor of about six. They position US military assets around the world, especially close to hotspots and close to countries that may consider adventurism across borders that are not their own. And they position them so that it is impossible to attack a neighbor without also killing a bunch of U.S. personnel. Now, the implication there isn't necessarily that if you do that, the U.S. response will be nuclear, but there is an understanding that the U.S. response will not be something that you enjoy. And I think we can look to the fact that ever since the attack on the U.S. base that left three servicemen killed and a number injured in recent days, after the U.S. retaliatory strikes, there has not been a single attack again. There is this sense of that the U.S., you do not want to wake up to U.S. air power in your backyard, even if that's not thermonuclear. So I I thought I'd kind of nuance that point a little bit. I would also just back up Helen's point, which is that prosperity is built on stability. I know everyone likes to spin conspiracy theories about how, you know, warmongering defense contractors control the laws of power. 
most corporations would vastly prefer the world to be a very stable and predictable place. The US is the most prosperous large country in human history. They benefit more from stability than most countries. And they are able through their presence in a whole bunch of places to comparatively cheaply maintain that stability. You only have to look at the impact of the Ukraine war, which was a war between two, okay, large countries, but still fairly peripheral countries economically, and look at what that did to the global economy to see the benefits of a US-delivered stability order for everyone, but also for the US. Especially people who like grains and bread, right? I do love bread. <laughs> Fair enough. Let, let's let's take what you've said and, and, and build on that. So I want to drill down on why you think the US, or both of you think the US being in Europe is essential to global stability that they benefit from, and why they need to subsidize, and it is subsidizing, and I'm going to, this is where I disagree with you, Dimitri, where you're saying like, it's not saving money. They are subsidizing European defense because they have taken on the lion's share of funding European security arrangements for the last 25 years and allowed European countries to not contribute up to the NATO standard. In some situations allowed NATO member countries to barely fund their militaries at all which allows them to spend money elsewhere, European countries to spend some money elsewhere, which I do think is subsidizing. Now, whether, you know, US pulls back its spending and, and saves money or can reallocate it, that's a different question. But I want to understand why, if the US stops spending as much money or even pull out of Europe at all, why is that bad for the US? NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said, any suggestion that allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the US, and puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. Now, the last bit of that sentence is obviously true because there are American and European soldiers in Europe, but why does it undermine US security for the US not to be involved on the European continent? I, I don't think anyone's made that argument clearly to me that US taxpayers, and Helen and I live in the US, US taxpayers aren't doing super well. Uh, cost of living here is huge. People sit there and they go, every, every European I, I know who comes to America goes, I can't believe how dirty the streets are, how things don't work, how the country's falling apart, and then they go back to Europe. Why should it be on the US taxpayers, 350 million of them, or you know, probably not that many, 250 million taxpayers, to, as Jens Stoltenberg said, guarantee European security? If you look at it transactionally, John, I mean, I think that it's actually a very Which the Europeans do, to be sense. clear. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's a good deal for Americans to be spending. Like, if you look at the sort of budget for this last year, right, Social Security, I think, accounts for about like 25% or thereabouts. Defense spending is, I've got these stats in front of me, so I'm not going to pretend I know them off the top of my head, is about 13.3% of the total federal spending for 2024. And within that 13.3%, I think the NATO budget is a very, very small amount Tiny of money amount. to yeah. be paying it's a good point. for international stability and for the US companies and investments abroad to be doing well and for US citizens abroad to be very safe. So if I were sitting in that budget room with the president and convincing them of sort of chipping in this amount of money, transactionally, I think it's actually quite a good bet. You're paying a very little amount of money to ensure that all of your interests abroad, most of them are looked after and those of your allies, which would then also flow to you. I think the US can, you can look at the US and say, yes, it's probably a very thriving North American continent that can and sort of survive on its own, look inward and sort of have its own production, domestic production capabilities. But ultimately, that's not enough for the US to be prosperous and for it to remain, you know, the number one sort of economy in the world, especially as the way things are going overseas with the with a view to China, right? So I think that this is a very small amount of money for the taxpayers to be paying in order to kind of underwrite the security of the world and the world that they live in. So is the argument, Dimitri, that I'm making or putting forward, and it's kind of a, a version of the Trump argument, is it just a vibes argument about it doesn't feel good for us to spend money over there when those people who are snotty and look down their nose at us and say our food is too sugary, they don't spend money? Is it just like a vibes argument, but the actual reality is what Helen said? It's the baggy suits. That's what it is, John. That's what they look down on us for. <laughs> the long ties. I think there is, look, there is a fundamental injustice to it. The world's not a fair place. Part of this question is like, well, what percentage of its GDP would 
the Netherlands have to spend in order to have a defense force capable of defending itself against a Russian incursion? And I guess the answer is like 40. So there is this fundamental point where no matter how much the Europeans were to spend, uh, it's a collection of small militaries in comparatively small countries, possible exception of France. Like the US is always going to have to be a guarantor of security if it wants security and if Russia is the the target enemy. But let's be a bit fairer and say that it's a collective in Europe. So I obviously like the, the Dutch example is true, but we're talking here about 2% of everyone's proportional GDP. So it's fair, like it's a, it's a percentage, it's not an absolute amount. And we're talking about collectivizing European security. So just let's pull America out of it rather than, because I think we're sort of arguing at the extremes here, which aren't neither are fair. Why, why is it not reasonable to expect all European countries to spend 2% or more to like collect? Imagine America didn't exist. America was Canadian economic power. What would Europe be doing right now? This gets to the heart of things, and this, I think, marks the distinction. I take my mind back to 2014, which was like the nadir of NATO spending, and I put myself in the shoes of European policymakers who are being asked to, quite shortly after the financial crisis, to spend a big percentage of their budgets on national defense. And I think if I was a European policymaker, I'd be sitting there going, to protect ourselves from who? The NATO Article 5 has been invoked once in the history of NATO after 9-11 by the US to combat terrorism. The war on terror followed that. And, you know, you can have different views on how that went and how excited the people who went into Afghanistan and Iraq with the US should be about that. But setting that aside, you had a situation where you're looking at it. They in 2014 did not believe that Russia was a threat. Which was also the year of the Euromaidan protests, right? Which kicked this whole thing off. Yeah, that was the Euromaidan protests. But even in 2014, you had a year later, Merkel signed the pipeline treaty to establish the second pipeline Nord Stream 2. Europe did not fundamentally believe that Russia was a military threat to the continent. And frankly, at the time, neither did the US. They were trying resets. They were trying engagement. They were going to collaborate on climate change and terrorism. So from the European perspective, you're like, well, we, if the Netherlands increases its defense spending by 0.3%, what, what do we achieve? Who are we defending ourselves from? The US at the time was increasingly focused on China. The EU is not in the same place geostrategically vis-a-vis the threat they perceive from China as the US is. They simply do not think they are going to be in a shooting war with the People's Liberation Army. And they, I mean, they didn't believe it back then. They don't believe it now. The world has now changed and it is clear Europe got that wrong. Let me put on my, my most Ukrainian accent or, or in fact, and I should say, we've been saying Europe the whole time. The Eastern Europeans, they knew and they were spending the money. Yeah. Poland, I think, spends about 4% of its GDP yeah. on, on defense. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They've been raising the alarm bells for a while. <laughs> exactly. Poland, Estonia, and Latvia were like, no, guys, they're, they're, they're still scary. So we're talking France, UK, Spain, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, these kind of Western European fat and happy countries, if I may be. Yeah, like, like, like you're Belgium. You're like, who's going to, who are we going to yeah. fight conceptually in yeah. 2014? Yeah. You know what it was? It was that meme of Vladimir Putin, like topless on a, on a horse. That I think a lot of people are like. Oh, it's okay then. It's okay. We can we can support him. He's a, he's a cultural figure icon. of ridicule. Yeah. Yeah. Don't tell me you also think he looks like Daniel Craig. No. Okay. I'm gonna go on record <laughs> for the sake of my reputation here and say I do not believe that he looks like Dobby the Elf, and yeah. I can't unsee that now. Once someone pointed that out, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm on a list. Anyway. Yeah, that was going to say, if you weren't before. Yeah, yeah I, I think all of that's a really good point, Dimitri. I think, and you know, you said US was dealing with China. I'd say by 2014, the US wasn't aware of China. Mm. I think that happened <laughs> all around. It's very odd when you have 10 odd years of history to reflect upon. I think yeah. all of this started to change around 2014, 2015, 2016, right around the world. China started to you know, bare its teeth a little bit more. Xi Jinping started to be more assertive. Arguably, that's what you know, as we said, the Euromaidan protests, the Ukrainian kind of push towards Western Europeanism started to think in the, in the Kremlin thinking started, to, I think, to be like, okay, we can't let that happen. So like around the world, you see the, the, the germination of these anti-liberal ideas. And I mean, arguably, fairly enough, the US and Europe 
took a little while to wake up to those changes. But I think it's a good point. So let me shift the conversation a little bit to what is the European strategy here? Obviously, they're trying to keep the US involved in NATO for obvious reasons. But I've been very interested in, in particularly Macron's pitch to be the leader of Europe, as it were, the de facto leader of Europe by kind of saying France is an Indo-Pacific country because they've got a couple of colonial or old colonial holdings out in the Pacific. You know, he, he really wants Europe to be a third pole of power in this new world. He wants China, US and Europe to stand on their own kind of two feet. Yet at the same time, European leaders want to keep America involved with them. So they kind of, it strikes me again, maybe I'm being overly provocative, but Europe kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to take American security, but it doesn't want to do anything that America says. Fair enough. I would be the same, but is that reasonable? What's their strategy here? I think Macron has been wanting to sort of lead France as the future of, you know, Europe for since the start of his time. I mean, he's like outgoing president now anyway, right? So since I don't could, know like what. Since he was six, probably. Since he was about six Since years he was old, six. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, he's actually Benjamin Button. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, the, the the angle that Macron has taken for Europe is, is one of a positive story. And this is not me trying to be a creep again, but I really do think that he is a very inspirational leader in, don't tell that to the French protesters, but I do think that he's been trying to send an ins, like a optimistic story of Europe through sort of like tech and through innovation and sort of modernizing that narrative. Right? Yeah, modernizing, but away from all the sort of like doom and gloom of the national security stuff, right? He positions France as somewhere that's like a little bit more forward leaning than Germany, for example. And I think in lieu, well, I think in the wake of really Angela Merkel and her leadership in Germany, I think people there are reevaluating Germany's position in NATO and what that looks like going forward. Tim, you look like you're about to weigh in there and destroy my my argument. No, it's a, it's a, it's a really good thought. I a couple of things. But, I mean, France. But uh, I'm I'm still I'm still trapped on compiling a list of the world leaders you're currently thirsting after. But setting that <laughs> setting that aside, I think France, for one thing, has always been in a different position to Germany in that France has been able to invest in its armed forces and even be sort of very nationalistic about its armed forces in a way that doesn't make everyone start giving them the side eye and getting getting nervous. Germany has been apologizing and sort of cringing about its army for, for 50 years for, I should say, some very justifiable reasons. Their track record's not great here. but So, so I think that that's one thing. I will say one thing that's never been super clearly defined of late is when Europeans talk about strategic autonomy, as Macron does, what specifically is he picturing in that? Is he picturing a Europe that is able to defend its own borders? Because that is one level of investment. And while, you know, you can question the realism of that, it is, it's not out of the question. You know, Finland has a formidable army defensively, Sweden as well. There are some like, and France. And there are nuclear powers. And and France and the UK and nuclear powers. These are formidable, you know, you can nitpick, but that is one category of strategic power. However, when you get into projecting power globally, when he starts talking about being a power in the Indo-Pacific, you have to come back to the fact that the UK's two aircraft carriers apparently are unable to operate at the moment because they one's in dry dock and one lacks. There's literally not enough support ships to get it out onto the ocean consistently. The fact that virtually none of these countries, like France, can kind of do it a little bit in its former colonies, but most of these countries are unable to power project significantly beyond their borders without a huge amount of US logistical assistance. If that is what the Europe thinks it's going to fix, then I'm sorry, 2% of GDP is not going to cut it. Um, these are trillion dollar investments, and they're not going to happen. Yeah, it's precisely why I mentioned. They're having their cake and eat it too, because they want to be able to maintain a relationship with China that says that they're going to be our biggest car market and we're going to be able to have great trading routes across Central Asia. But however, we would also like the US to do our power projection for us and keep us at the top table when it comes to like security and safety. And it does feel like, which one is it? Yeah. And listen, there's no getting around it. When you want someone to hit 85 sites in Yemen in one day in order to protect global shipping, there aren't a lot of candidates for that particular position. Now, the, the issue with all of this is like, it's easy to take a fairness position. If we were to reset the world and we were to divide up 
kind of responsibility, then the current level of responsibility probably wouldn't be fair as a distribution. But like the US has those assets. The US has those assets and the US is not getting rid of those assets because frankly, it wants them for a China company, it wants them for a bunch of reasons, and it makes a lot of money and jobs from having them. I'd like to get onto that because I, I, I'm not I'm not as con- I mean in the short term you're absolutely right medium term you're, you're almost certainly right long term I'm not a- as convinced that the US is going to maintain its military supremacy P- not not because of China but because its stuff is aging and it needs to invest a ton to meet the 21st century going forward and I think the tr- the, the 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 Trump led. Republican followed, but generally popular or at least reasonable argument in the U.S. is they're really they are really reevaluating their role in the world, and I think isolationism is in this country's DNA. It is an isolationist country, like at its founding core myth. You know, I think to your point, Dimitri and Helen, I think you both said that it's benefited more than any other country on planet from being a global superpower for sure but you know we, we we don't have to go back too far in history to remember how reluctantly it was pulled into world war ii how reluctant they were to maintain a european this is what gets lost too is that after world war ii eisenhower was very 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 keen on pulling the u.s completely out of europe and getting europe to stand on its own two feet it didn't happen for many many different reasons but the Vietnam and the Afghanistan and this kind of more recent neo-imperialism that you call the US is really, I think, the anomaly in overseas military kind of um, the way it sees itself. You know, I'm not discounting that it has been a fact of the last 50 years that the US has been everywhere and, and meddling in people's uh, business when they shouldn't be. But I don't think it's in the, and you could argue, maybe I'm completely wrong, but historically, I don't think it's in the US DNA to, to be I think they're isolationists at the, at at their core, and I think that yeah, I agree. Perhaps, with you. perhaps this is a reversion to the mean. Perhaps the next fifty years will be a slow retreat back to what they envisaged after World War Two. I don't know. That's speculation. But I want to pull back even more broadly on this conversation. I think it's been interesting to kind of think about these things. But what what is the West? So let's group Europe. Let's put Australia in there. Let's put America in there. Canada arguably Japan, but we can leave that conversation to another day. But like the West, what is the West's interest in being involved in all of this has been, all of this conversation is obviously set up by Ukraine, arguably Taiwan, arguably Israel and Gaza. What is the West's interest in being involved in these places? Why is it, I I still haven't heard a compelling argument made by an elected official or a Jens Stoltenberg character about why the West collectively should be defending Ukraine, should be defending Taiwan, should be defending, I mean, Israel, Gaza is a different kind of thing. It's more complicated. But there are plenty of arguments about why they should be, but it's not been made like politically communication, like political communication level of like sloganeering or like top line thing for voter to go to the polls in America or or Europe why it is in their interest to be doing this kind of stuff. I mean, I look, not that I'm a political communicator at all, but I think ultimately the way to get to people's hearts and for them to believe this is that you are fighting for a way of living, right? A way of like life that you believe in and your freedoms at a personal individual level. At, at least that's a way that I think it cuts across very individualized societies like the US and I think parts of Europe after the Renaissance, the individual is at the core of this, right? Versus the collectivism in like North Asia that we've, you and John, you and I have talked about. Even in the words you're using there, like, as you said, you're not a political communicator, so I'm not going to get on your ass about using words like collectivism. <laughs> not going to get a whatnot. job anytime soon as one. No, but, but like we had in the 1980s, Reagan made it incredibly clear. It was good versus evil. It was freedom versus yeah. totalitarianism. It was these things that and obviously we can we're we're very smart very educated people we know those are ridiculous kind of stories we tell ourselves but that is the kind of thing that you need to be able to do to sure. convince someone in Kansas or Nottingham that they should be caring about people in eastern ukraine that this is a battle for good or evil or this is a way of life conversation and we just see in the republican senate we have Mitch McConnell of all people kind of defending the US need to send money to Ukraine. And he Mm. couldn't make the argument within his own party in which he has been a power broker for 
decades, he couldn't make the convincing argument that it was in the US national interest or what the people want internally. So like, what's what's going on here? Like, why can't we make that argument? And is the argument even makeable anymore, Dim? I mean- Strong feelings, obviously. Yeah, obvious. Well, obviously, but try and put your try and put your non-Ukraine hat on. Like, try yeah, and, sure, like, sure, sure. Maybe take Taiwan as an example, because again, no one's made that argument about Taiwan. First, I'll I'll put the obvious hat on. You know, Zelensky's a snack. Just really important <laughs> to get that <laughs> yeah, out well, there. Helen's um, on the <laughs> so, Sorry to sorry to steal steal thunder. No, uh, first, I think I want to challenge some of the words we've been using. Defend Ukraine, fighting. The West isn't doing either of those things. The West is overwhelmingly sending surplus Gulf War era equipment to Ukraine in order to have Ukrainians fight and defend Ukraine with it. I know that sounds like I'm nitpicking language, but I think it matters because one of the things this allows the West to do is potentially delay or forestall a moment where the West is fighting Russia whether that be in Poland, in Estonia, in Latvia, in Lithuania. So I think that is that is one point where throughout the entire Cold War, there was a logic of we stop them there so we don't have to fight them here. I do think that logic to an extent Okay, so that's, that's one bit of political communication you would be hammering on. Like, we are doing this now so we don't have to do it later with our people. It's a fair yes. point. So I think that argument, I mean, I think we can sometimes get tie ourselves in knots when we start talking about the fact that like the monies uh, for the in the US case, the EU is doing a lot more financial, direct financial transfers. The US is stuff, overwhelmingly yeah. paying itself to replace weapons that are near right. the end of their life cycle. Like, but I mean, I don't think, you know, you can, you can put your nerd glasses on and make that case, but I don't think that no, but I think you're touching on an interesting point there that I haven't heard the political argument being made of like, hey, this is a really good way, like cheap, not free, but cheap oh, way for us to modernize and rearm our stocks. We're sending old stuff and we're paying our our domestic you know, manufacturers, so pumping almost stimulus yeah. into an industry Absolutely. to rearm ourselves. I, but, but why isn't that argument being made? Like, is it too coldly geopolitical? It is a little bit, and and look, it's hard because I think the temptation is when if you are if you are Biden and you are on the stump, the temptation is to make Helen's argument about morality. Like fundamentally, this is not good and evil, right and wrong. I don't put words into your mouth, but but sort of the Reagan era. I was, yeah. I mean, I wasn't arguing the morality stuff. I was sort of appealing to the base kind of like intrinsic selfish values Mm. of people in saying that if if you like the way that you live, you want others to sort of have that same lifestyle and you want to protect your own lifestyle. Mm. I think we know how effective that political argument is in the US. Correct. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think there's a certain appeal for, for, yeah, actually that's true. It's probably gotten a bit tired, hasn't it? It's it's a very difficult thing. I just think not. I don't think anyone thinks that's the government's job in the US to like kind of project a, a way of, I think, I think until you make, I mean, what I'm getting at here is I just, as you both have kind of skirting around, it's just like, I, I think it's really difficult to make a clear political argument about why the West is involved in these places, because we all now have this distaste for calling things good, bad, evil, because it, it, it's, it's nuanced. It's, you know, Dimitri, your first comment was, well, hang on, guys, let's nuance this because it's actually Ukrainians fight. And like, and that's a f- obviously a fair point. But like, I can tell you, Donald Trump doesn't worry about those kinds of nuances. And that's what, and you know, the bricklayer, it's obviously an example, but like a bricklayer in Kansas doesn't care about those nuances. He like, they, they fairly enough want a compelling, simple argument about why why we're spending money on these things. And I, and I just don't, I think it's a real problem. Let me have a go at one. And I think this ties in together everything we've been talking about. The US benefits from a stable and predictable world. If people in Idaho want an example of that, every time the world gets shaky, their gas prices go up. And as we know, US politics is really just a barometer of what you pay at the pump. And if the gas prices are low, the the president gets reelected. Like that is how uh, the US measures its prosperity. Uh, the U.S. benefits from a stable order. The way that the U.S. has actually been able to protect a stable order is firstly through a web of alliances that massively and hopefully 
kind of beyond the point of tolerance, increase the costs of military belligerence for some of the world's most belligerent states. When October 7th happened in Israel, one of the first things the US did was move assets into the region and send some very stern warnings to Hezbollah, Iran, and others. And a whole bunch of Israel's neighbors took kind of one look at the USS Eisenhower and went, you know what, Mm, we might sit this one out. So the by having that force, the US is able, and by guaranteeing, or at least in the Taiwanese case, strongly implying that military adventurism will draw you into a conflict in the US, the US is able to maintain that security without firing too many shots and without spending too much American blood, if some American treasure. So I'd make that point. And then specifically in in kind of the Ukrainian case, again, this war has drained the Russian military of material, men and resources. What was considered the second most powerful army in the world is a shadow of its former self and all it has cost the US is a negligible amount of Gulf era surplus. While, and I think this is the last point I'll make and I'll shut up, the US military spent the last sort of decades since September 11th, re-gearing itself to a style of warfare that is special forces, precision strikes, it is fighting massively asymmetrical battles in the desert. It is now looking at China and Russia and Iran, which are much more conventional threats. And it is looking around at its military industrial complex that has forgotten how to make a million artillery shells a month. And this is an opportunity to reinvest in that. So I think I agree with all of that. I still just think that if, and obviously we're in furious agreement at the base level, and I'm I'm trying to kind of tease out this idea that I think this the, the bridge from what that is to a political argument that is going to resonate with Americans, which is what we're actually talking about, because America is still arguably a democracy for a little while longer, is a lot longer and a lot more difficult to walk over than I think most people think. Because at the end of the day, if I had to channel the vibe of like a, you know, a reasonable but kind of globally skeptical American, it is so, if they're not Jewish, I'll put that caveat in there, because I think there's obviously a a Jewish um, element of like American Jewish communities are very clear about why America should be involved in the Middle East conflict. But if you are not Jewish and you don't have a or evangelical. in that fight. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, that's a big component. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Like Pence are supporters. If you don't have a dog in those fights, if you're Trump, if you're the classic Trump kind of guy, you don't care. I mean, what, you, what, you, I shouldn't say you don't care. No one's told you why you should care about Israel other than general, oh, that's terrible terrorism. No one's told you why you should care about Ukraine other than this is bad that Russia did it. And no one's told you about why you should care about Taiwan other than maybe chips and we shouldn't let China run the world. There is still an element of if we can fix our southern border and stop immigration, we are okay on our own. And, Mm. And like, I don't agree with it. I don't, I think all the points you made, Dimitri, are obviously correct. They would say, yes, we've drained the Russian conventional army of people, like you said, but the Russian conventional army isn't a threat to America. It's the nukes that are a threat and they're still there. Like, I think the average American still hasn't had that core. Maybe it wasn't Reagan, but it sits in my brain as Reagan just being saying, this is a battle for good and evil. And I think it's a stupid argument. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying that's, I think, the political argument that hasn't been made that is going to mean that this kind of Trump isolationism stuff, is got, it's got a real hole in America. I think they've tried to make it, but it just hasn't resonated, right? Going back to your earlier points. It's, it's of like, has it resonated with somebody from the rural parts of the US, right? Particularly in the southwestern states where I think a lot of the new, the fight, this election cycle is going to happen. Like the and Arizonas it's a country and New Mexico's. 25 years care. of fighting wars that were not existential and losing people and, and spending money and yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget most of the people, the soldiers that were sent to bleed in these wars came from lower income, you know, sort of rural-ish flyover state American um, families who had, I think, going to the military was one of the more lucrative options for some of these folks. So there's a lot of that sort of resonating from the last 20 years as well. Yeah, and I think it's also really important to remember that the US is currently so divided along partisan lines and everything is so sort of team-based and political that 
it's you know it's easy to say oh if we could just find the right formulation if we could just find the words but i think a lot of us politics now is tied into party loyalty personality loyalty and as well as like your media ecosystem if you're getting your news from oan it doesn't it doesn't matter what's being said on pbs Look, obviously, it's a divided country. I I often think that's overdone um, by folks who don't live here and by media folks because it's what sells papers slash gets clicks. It is obviously a divided country, though. I agree, John. I would say that I don't think this is as partisan as people think. Foreign policy, America's role in the world, these kinds of questions, I think you have within the left, within the Democrats, you have a ton of dissent internally. Within the Republicans, you have a ton of dissent internally. And I think actually the horseshoe theory of politics in America is like, I think there's probably a fair few folks who are on the far left of the Democratic Party who would find themselves agreeing with the far right of the Republican Party in terms of America's role in the world. Um, So I actually think while your partisan point is fair and everyone's always fighting about everything, I think this question of and what we're talking about is, is is America's role in the world over the next 50 years starting now. I think that's just, it, it isn't clear what any, I don't think I could tell you, okay, I know you voted Republican in the last election. I know you think this about the world, America's role in the world. I, I don't think I could. And, and I think, and I, and I, you know, I, we'll leave it here because I, I think it's, we've probably beaten the horse a bit, but I, ju- I just think it's really, really difficult to make clear political arguments about these kinds of questions. I think wonkism doesn't break through. And I think unless you have a leader who is willing to do what Trump is doing, and we all think he's misguided, but what Trump is doing, which is simplifying to the point of factual incorrectness, (laughs) but simplifying and making a vibes argument about the world. And and, uh, I don't know, like until, until there's a compelling vibes argument on the side that I think we've all discussed is in America's interest, which is kind of being involved until there's a vibesy kind of argument on that side. I, I, I don't see I don't see how people can push back against that isolate increasing isolationism of America. Anyway, we we digress a little bit from the original topic. I think I think if it's fair for me to sum up just generally our conversation today before we move into our our lighthearted uh, cocktail chatter, we think Trump's kind of comments hit at a core point of Europeans not spending enough or not contributing enough to their own collective security. But obviously it's more complicated and, 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 you know, I think Europeans are waking up to it and they are starting to, Western Europeans are waking up to it. Eastern Europeans have been probably far more aware of this for a long time. It's still in America's interest though, to be involved in Europe. I think, is that a fair thing to say that we we all agree on or not? I think so. As usual, we're in furious agreement with each other. But thank you for keeping us honest, John, and making us spell out the reasons why we do it rather than saying it as a talking point, which I think we all tend to do. Well, I mean, I've made this point a few times. I just think there's a huge, I think one of the biggest problems here is there's a huge disconnect between people who arguably know what they're talking about, like us three and plenty of others in the media and, and the defense establishments and think tanks and all that kind of stuff. And the people who make these decisions in a democracy. And I don't think, I think one of the key things is we're all very quick to pat each other on the back and go, oh, isn't Trump an idiot? Yes, yes, we're very smart and we should like, right, I'm going to get on Twitter and furiously agree with my followers. But uh, that's not how we make decisions. And until mm-hmm. you make the argument as below us as we think it is to denigrate ourselves to make simple arguments until we until we do that, it's, it's, it's a very difficult question. Anyway. Part of what we do at Intrigue and part of what we do in this podcast, I think, is to kind of tease these arguments out and make people aware of blind spots. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit too uh, intentionally provocative about this, but I think there's a big problem. No, I think I think that's a, that's a good summary. The US benefits from a stable world. It's currently getting it quite cheaply. But as John said, uh, I don't know if no one's making the argument. I think people do make the argument. But as Helen said, it's not cutting through. It doesn't always have the right champions. And we do live in a world where the where so much of the media cycle is dominated by people willing to say outrageous things for attention. And zero some things, yeah. And and yeah, and to treat the world as more more black and white in an unhelpful way than it is. So I think it's important to have these discussions. And I hope people enjoy listening to us hash this kind of stuff out. Because uh, I always learn something. I mean, I think they should be taught at schools, right? Why were we not taught geopolitics in high school and instead we know how to do Pythagoras theorem? I mean, fair enough if you go into like 
a mathematical sort of, you know, based profession. But I do think that as a general knowledge sort of along with geography and history, people should be taught some idea of how geopolitics works and how, why it matters to them. International right. politics, there's yeah. A, there's mm. a business idea for intrigue, John. <laughs> there you go. Um, no one asked me, but if I was in charge of political messaging for this, for our side of the campaign, it would be a world in which America withdraws is a world that China actively wants, and then we shouldn't give it to them. That's what I would say. That's the simple thing is nobody really in America likes China or thinks China's a good place. Leverage that and say, if we do this, that's what China wants, so we should do the opposite. Anyway, let's move on to cocktail chatter. Helen, parties this weekend. Uh, I know you're going to be raving from sun up to sundown as you always do. What <laughs> When you have that really awkward conversation with someone, and I'm going to rule out calling everyone a thirst trap. What interesting thing are you going to say to folks? To you're making me sound started? like you guys are both making me sound like a sex pest. I'm absolutely not. I just want to say well, that for the record. I didn't say that. I, I <laughs> certainly didn't. I'm not, you're the one on record mentioning any of that. I mean, I am going to a pyjamas party tonight. That's got nothing I mean, to do with everything that we go. just discussed. But I will just say that tonight, my chatter there is going to be about one of our mates, actually, who you both know, one of our dear friends from our foreign service intake by the name of Mark Warnock is now a sort of, I think, minor celebrity in Australia. Yeah, shout out to on, Mark because uh, yeah. he hasn't been able to promote himself enough. <laughs> We love you, Mark. Uh, we, we are, we I mean, I'm a loyal fan uh, and so still on all the threads of the WhatsApp chatter. But this guy has gone in to sort of really demonstrate to, I think, the world what diplomats are able to do. I think we're always told that we're generalists and we're able I, to sort I of thrive in every situation. I, look, come on. He's done pretty well. Um, he's killing it. He's, so he's far. killing it. He's killing it. He's crushing it. He's like winning, winning, you know, like swimming challenges, winning treasure hunts, getting immunity and brokering deals with uh, with people on the island. So I think, you know, shout out to Mark. That's going to be my chatter and showing people that diplomats are actually very versatile uh, individuals. Yeah, I think the difference there is you've expanded from Mark's skill set into like diplomats. Yeah. I, I think I think they, you know, broke, <laughs> a broken enough. clock okay, is right fine. twice a day. They've picked they've picked one of the few who would survive. I I think I'd immediately melt and be begged to be voted off anyway. Yeah, John, it's not your it's not your cup of tea. You'd thrive in the Arctic, but you'd probably die just, in that. Scenario. I just get furious and then sulky, and I don't think that's good TV. <laughs> or maybe it's great TV. I don't know. It's great TV. <laughs> or, or listening. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, exactly. John. Yeah, yeah, no, no relevance to anything. Um, okay, my chatter very quickly is I, I think there's uh, something interesting about Paris, which you know I, I think Paris gets unfairly maligned as a as a as a pretty gross city to go to if you're a, a sophisticated tourist who says, oh, you know, you go to Paris, it's too busy, the French are not nice, and everything is expensive, but. Paris is changing a lot, I think. Two things. One is the Seine. People may have heard this before the Olympics this year. Their, their goal is to clean up the river to make it swimmable by 2020, like properly swimmable by 2025. I, I can't fathom a city better than Paris if you could then wander down to the river and have a dip and like lounge about near the, the, what is a very beautiful river, really, if it was clean. And then the second thing is I just saw news that Macron, there was a push to ban all the book for folks who've been to Paris. There's all these booksellers that informal kind of booksellers that set up along the banks of the Seine selling books and art and trinkets and stuff. And, and they were supposed to be shut down, I think, by the Paris Council. Arguably, I think, to kind of make it look a little bit cleaner and nicer ahead of the Olympics this summer. And Macron actually came in and overruled it and said they can stay. Um, I don't understand the politics of why he did that, but I think it's a good thing because I think the idea of grabbing a book and going down in the summer to the Seine to have a dip makes me really pretty excited about going back to Paris. Maybe not this summer because the Olympics will be chaos, but just in general. I just want this on record to make sure that one of our other dear friends who is a, a French a Francophile, when we first joined the Foreign Service, John was gave her a lot of crap about loving France and having lived in Paris. And so I just want this on record so that we can uh, we can rub your nose in that. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, uh, clearly maturing at a, at a slow rate here, but I, my view on Paris <laughs> has gone from didn't love it to think it's one of the greatest cities on the planet now if you know where to go. But anyway, wow. that's a, 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 yeah, really love it. Um, last times I've been there, I've just, do you know where it all started? I went to a place and had chocolate mousse served out of a giant bowl that they bring around and like whack big globs on your plate. And it's the best thing I've ever eaten. And ever since then, I've been like, you're all right, Paris. Anyway, Dimitri. <laughs> Uh, so uh, one thing that I would be tormenting people if I ever got invited to parties, which if you remember DFAT, not so much, 
That's not true. I get invited into Dungeons and Dragons parties all the time. Um, it's uh, social functions, not so much. But there is a conspiracy theory that the CIA has created Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey and then rigged the Super Bowl for them. Now, obviously, like there's there's a lot One to unpack One in five there. people believe it. One in five. Can you believe yeah, that? One in five Americans. But a lot of the people who said yes in that poll also said that being asked that question was the first time they'd heard that, which really makes you sort of raise us some bigger questions about polling. But yes, setting yes. aside the absurdity Correct. of it, my thing is like, first, can you imagine if it were true? And can you imagine being the CIA analyst who like figured out where Bin Laden is and then <laughs> having this other guy be the superstar of the of the CIA walking around Langley going like oh you found bin laden i made Tay-Tay. like <laughs> i made this i did everybody kind of fought to go and go like yo you found who wasn't he like in just like a house in pakistan and just seething <laughs> with anger as this person is like carried off on the shoulders of his spooky colleagues i don't know for me that's just that image just tickles me pink I mean, she's going to be absolutely critical in determining part of how the electorate votes. So I think everyone is really closely watching that now because you remember last election, she had baked cupcakes, I think, with Biden, um, Harris uh, on the icing, and that ended up swaying a whole bunch of voters going to vote. So let's see what happens. Just never let Travis Kelsey sing again. I don't know if you guys saw that clip of him singing Viva Las Vegas, but you saw Taylor Swift getting the ick in real time. Well, on that uh, discordant (laughs) note, let's wrap it up. It's a bit of a longer podcast today, but I think a really important conversation for everyone to be having um, generally. Dimitri, as always, a real pleasure and less combustible than I had hoped to to get uh, the podcast going. But um, thank you as always. We'll see you next week. There's an 800 word WhatsApp coming your way with uh, (laughs) everything I really believe. I look forward to leaving you on red for the next week. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, thanks so much. Always a pleasure um, to see you as well. Thank you, John. Sorry for my inappropriate comments. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. (laughs) Thanks. Dialogue editing, mixing, and mastering for this episode was done by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions.